All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? What the fuckaholics? What the fuck publicans? What the fuckocrats? How, how's it going? What's happening? I am, uh, this is my podcast, WTF. I'm Mark Marin. I didn't forget who I was. I'm just sort of, there's a lot going on right now. Today on the show, Erwin Winkler. Erwin Winkler is a film producer, uh, like a an amazing film producer. And when I got the opportunity to talk to him, I was like, of course. And he's got this book coming out. It'll be out. You can pre-order it. It's A Life in Movies, Stories from 50 Years in Hollywood. Comes out May 7th. But uh, he basically goes from movie to movie that he's been involved with. And there's some great movies. And it's a very readable book. I'm not really selling the book, but I, you know, it's one of these situations where I did read it in order to talk to him. You know, the movies this guy did from the very beginning, I mean, he's been at it a long time, but he did, uh, what would you know? They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Early on, he did that. Point Blank with Lee Marvin, uh, the Alcatraz, that's a good movie. It, yeah, Winkler did that. He did Rocky. He's done most of, he's done a lot of the, uh, the uh, Scorsese films, Raging Bull he produced. He produced Round Midnight, which I didn't get to. Like we had, we were just, we were bouncing around. I had about an hour and fifteen minutes. But uh, he did some of those Bronson movies, Breakout, a lot of these stuff that The Gambler with James Caan, the original one, Toback movie, great movie. But he just uh, so True Confessions, a you know that is a movie that that uh, is great that people don't really uh, give it the respect it deserves. He directed um, Guilty by Suspicion with De Niro. Anyways. He's a, he's the real deal Hollywood guy, and he does it the old school way. And it was great to talk to him. So that's coming up. But I feel all right. Do I sound all right? All right. I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with you. Drink some coffee today, and I haven't drank coffee in a long time. And I made some coffee. I made some white roast. I made some, uh, you know, like, yeah, I'm I'm drinking it right now. Pow! Look out! Just shit my pants. Just coffee. Co-op. That's a classic ad that I made up and I didn't have to do. But yeah, I drank some coffee today and uh, I'm not going back to it, but uh, I just, my buddy came over, he wanted some coffee, I made some coffee, I figured I have some coffee, see what that does. And I don't think you can notice any difference. Can you notice any difference? There's not much difference in the way I'm talking because I'm, I'm drank coffee, is there? I mean, there's a difference between tea and coffee, but you can't tell from you know how I'm talking, can you? <laughs> I exaggerated that. Hey. But uh, but yeah, so so I've been doing some reading. I, I, I think I want to share this the name of this book with you. I, I mean, like I usually do, but I don't know who laid this on me. I think it was one of you guys. Uh, it's called Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History by Kurt Anderson. Maybe some of you have read this already. It's been on the bestseller list. And I have, I rarely take real time to sit and read, and I've been making myself do that because you know Why? Because I like to read, and it's a nice thing to do, and I don't make time for anything. I, you know, I, I'm either sitting on my phone, or I'm working on a thing, or I'm running around doing dumb errands, or necessary errands, or I'm cooking, which isn't bad either. Cooking, reading, listening to country music is how I'm managing right now. And I don't need to manage. I mean, I'm okay. You know what I mean? I just took some taters out of the oven. Yeah. And that's not code. <laughs> I actually took some taters out of the oven. I got a purple sweet potato. I got a yam, an orange sweet potato. I got a Japanese sweet potato. And I got a regular sweet potato. And that's how I roll. Four different kinds of sweet potato. I bake them. I cut them up. And I pop them in my mouth when I'm feeling peckish. That and cashews, maybe an almond or a date. 
Yeah, that's how that's how I'm living right now. That's it. Country music, some some powerful jazz. I'm reading a book and I'm I'm snacking on potatoes and nuts. All right, you got a problem with that? And I'm thinking about things and I'm feeling my feelings. The book is great. Uh, the book Fantasyland. It really is this overarching sort of examination of the American spirit in terms of our propensity towards uh, magical thinking and and living in a fantasy, going back to before the America was settled, to original pre-Puritan religious groups that came here looking to establish a a, a, a righteous community. Uh, it was originally based in religion, and then he just moved through all of it. I'm just, right now, I'm halfway through the book. We're in the 70s. We're in the conspiracies. We're in the Disneyland. We've moved through uh, Pentecostalism, and we've moved through uh, P.T. Barnum. We've moved through a lot of stuff, man. But the book is compelling as hell. It's readable as hell. And it does give you a sense of the you know the nature of the individual and the deterioration of our uh, our belief in reason and science. Not mine, but you know, the neighbors, you know, the, the weird neighbors. There's a historical precedent to this president's impact on the fragile brain of the magically thinking uh, hordes. Uh, it's not going to make you feel better. It might make you realize that we were going to land here anyways, but uh, there's no answers. There's no solutions. You know, fantasy, magical thinking, it's definitely ahead right now, and Lord knows, Lord knows, see, magical thinking. You know, if that wins, what is the fantasy exactly? It's not going to be the world that I fantasized. Yeah, it's going to be a, a lot more singular, a little more myopic, which is a d- diplomatic word for, uh, <laughs> you know, fascism, maybe. I don't want to throw that word around. Let's just say uh, bad. How's bad? Is bad good? Just took some taters out of the oven. Hot taters downstairs. I got a few different types of hot taters. Yep, that's how I'm living. Looking forward to slicing them up, maybe eating a piece. I like sweet potatoes. Don't you? I think they're good for me. I've decided that. It's not based on bullshit, though, is it? How do we know what we know? What isn't bullshit? Look, man, I don't know who you think you are or what you think you're doing, but if whatever your life is built on in terms of a job... Seriously, if, if, if what you're doing doesn't involve math on some level, there's some bullshitting involved. Let's just be honest with ourselves. You know, it might be bullshitting for the right reason. It might be righteous bullshitting, but uh, we are built to bullshit, folks. It's how we survive. And I, you know, God knows, listen to me, what's tumbling out of my face? Huh? What is it? What was I going to tell you about? Oh, yeah. The Buddhism trip continues. And it's actually starting to have an effect on me. As some of you, if you're just joining uh, our conversation, I made some comments that were funny, actually, about Buddhism. But some people took offense. Some people took hostile offense. Hostile Buddhists. A good friend of mine and my sponsor and a respected uh, psychologist and writer, uh, Dr. Steve, also a Buddhist. We've had some conversations. Got no problem with Buddhists. But uh, somehow I pissed some Buddhists off and other Buddhists came to my defense. But this one sort of fleshes it out a little better. A little better. Uh, this is uh, the, the, the Duca comedian subject line. Mark, I'm a longtime lover of the show. Two thoughts. 
One, the Brene Brown chat was important. You have a knack for engaging with social scientists and thinkers. Yes, continue bringing in the stars, but your inner philosopher and psychologist seems to roam most free when you're connecting with people like Brene. Two, you've received several points of feedback on the Buddhism comment from the Vincent D'Onofrio episode. While, while I find the situation hilarious and know you don't need another perspective, I do think you've overlooked the root cause of your audience's reaction. You likely have quite a few casual and committed Buddhist fans. This is because, like it or not, you're the Dukkha podcaster and comedian. Now, initially when I read that, I did, I, that didn't sound good. Too close to Dukey, but it's spelled differently. D-U-K-K-H-A. Didn't know what it was. Now we get the explanation. Dukkha is the Buddhist concept of suffering and pain and the fact that much of life's mundane experiences are unsatisfactory. Now, many, if not most, comedians focus on suffering and draw their material from it. But you go deep into the depths of Dukkha. I'm a Dukkha deep diver. Deep into the depths of Dukkha. Many of your podcast intro monologues are you sharing the struggle of your mind generating and recognizing suffering on a second by second basis. And you share this process with a degree of transparency and honesty like no other. In Buddhism, this is not a wasted process. This is the first crucial step. You hear that? Buddhists, I'm Dukkha man. Yeah, I'm the Dukkha guy. I'm living in Dukkha and Dukey, by the way. The Marin Buddhist conspiracy widens. Dukkha is brought on by craving, which is the chase, the cycle of attempting to attain that which is fleeting and ultimately empty of any value. This craving concept is often the basis of your addiction recovery dialogue with guests. Lastly, in a nutshell, Buddhism says the majority of our problems are created by us, our perspective, the inner movie in our minds, and not the actual outside world. So just let go, lovingly engage with the world around you, and do the best you can. Pretty sure I've heard you hit on this exact concept during several conversations with guests. Mark, you're pretty damn Buddhist. Accept it. Apologies on the sermon. Keep speaking your truth. Best Joe in Seattle. So there you have it, my Buddhist detractors. Looks like I was unconsciously being of assistance to the concept and uh, practice of Buddhism and apparently at the first step and moving through some other ones. I'm not yet at the, uh, how eightfold, is it the eightfold path? See, that sounds like a hell of a path, but right now I'm, I'm sitting in dukkha and, uh, and a certain amount of mental dookie, okay? So I think, that's, I think that ends it. I think I'm going to take that as closure on the Buddhist situation, all right? We good? I feel pretty good. Hot taters downstairs. Folks, listen, if you want my tour dates, there's a lot coming. Go to WTF pod slash tour. I'll plug them specifically another day. There's always time for that. What else have I got to tell you? I'm also going to have some upcoming dates where you can see Sword of Trust, the movie I'm in, directed by Lynn Shelton. That's going to happen. It's getting a release. Real movie out in the theater. I'm in it. Exciting. Exciting? How about exciting? Exciting? Exciting. Exciting. Holy fuck. Yeah, coffee's not a great idea for me. So, Erwin Winkler came over. He's in his 80s. He's sharp as a tack. I just wanted to hit the movies and learn about how the, you know he got into the business. He's been a producer for 50 years. And we talk about some of your favorite movies, my favorite movies. We, we got a lot in. So, this is a, 
Also, he's got this book uh, coming out, A Life in Movies, Stories from 50 Years in Hollywood. Comes out May 7th. And it's an easy read. Just a little, you know, just a few pages on each movie he was involved with. Like a good story on each movie he was involved with. And there's a lot of movies. So this is me talking to uh, producer Erwin Winkler. Well, you live on the west side? Yeah, Beverly Hills. Yeah, forever? Uh, yes, yeah, since we came out in 1966. My wife, when we came out, said, listen, because what happened is I left uh, New York, came out here. She had to rent the apartment that we yeah. lived in in New York and take care of the kids. So she said, two things I want, a convertible <laughs> yeah. and a house in Beverly Hills, because she was born right outside of Beverly Hills. That's right. She comes from sort of a show business family. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Vaudeville. Yeah. Yeah. And did you know her parents? No. No? no you no, didn't? No, no. We <laughs> met in New York when she had moved to New York. You've been in the business, is it what, it's over 50 years now? Yeah. Well, 50, 53 years, yeah. And I found it fascinating, like right out, out of the gate in the book, that I think what was what was really interesting is, is your awareness, obviously, you would be aware as a producer, that uh, of how the business changed. You know, how it changed in five or six stages in the book. You talk mm -hmm. about the, yeah, the landscape yeah. of the business. But even right when he got out here, that was a huge shift when they... Uh, the, the It was in the midst of a big change, yeah. Because yeah. the government broke up the monopolies. Exactly, and television came along. People stopped going to the movies and started watching television. So the studios really ceased to exist as they were known. They no longer had actors under contract, directors under contract. Uh, when I went on, the first time I walked on the MGM Studios, they had a psychiatrist, which they needed, by the way. <laughs> a psychiatrist for but what? They had a, for, for the actors to talk to, or the executive. No, but they had everything. They had a dentist. Oh, they, I see what they you're saying. They had a school. It was it, a whole it city. Was, it was a whole, they controlled everything in your life if you were assigned to them. That's interesting. It's like uh, any other industry town that was built to, to service a particular industry. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting... Yeah, like Ford Motor Company would yeah. go into a city, build a factory... That's right. ...and own everything around it. They rented the uh, the houses to yep. the workers. And, yep. Yeah, it's interesting. It made, it made an enclosure with DuPont, I think, did that in some areas. And I, I know that even MetLife did the Stuyvesant town... You know, in New, in New York, York City, yeah. you know that. But in in England, when they did these rural communities where they would build the coal mine, for instance, the yeah. coal company would own the houses that the people lived in. Yeah, they would own the grocery store that the people shopped in. Right, the doctors would work for them and not for the right. individual patients. They owned everything. It was kind of interesting. I think that you do a really good job at balancing in the book and in your life the idea that this was. An incredibly big business, but it's also had this. There was the, the thing that it had the glamour and the and the excitement of of you know making you know dreams of making. It's like it, it's a dream factory. Yeah, that's what they called them. They yeah. called them dream factories, and for a reason. So where where did you come from originally? Um, I came from Coney Island, way I, back Coney yeah, Island. Yeah, yeah, Coney Island, and uh, my first my first job uh, really, which was part time, was working on the boardwalk in Coney Island. And it was uh, 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 show business in, in its purest form. Sure. What happened is I, I worked in a, uh, a bumper card uh, amusement place so <laughs> yeah. where the cars banged into each other, you know, and the, yeah. my job was to separate them. So yeah. 
I guess maybe that uh, helped me in my later <laughs> dealing with actors uh, separate everybody from being angry at each yeah. other and fighting with each other. So yeah, back then, like, I, have you been down to Coney Island lately? I haven't been there for years. Uh, my mother lived there until she died, yeah. uh, and that was about 20 years ago. And uh, so we hadn't gone back since. But uh, I remember, you know, hanging around Nathan's hot dog sure. stand and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, that was where I grew up. I talked to you. Know, who was else? I think Mel Brooks is from there. Yeah, Mel Brooks is and, from Brooklyn, and, and then I, I probably Coney Island. Yeah, and, and Woody, Rich. Woody Allen too. Yeah. So but Nathan's is still there with their hot dogs. Yeah. You like a Nathan's hot dog still? Uh, yeah. Actually, there's now a Nathan's uh, kind of a mobile Nathan's stand on Central Park. Uh, South and uh, and Fifth Avenue. I remember in Manhattan. They, uh, yeah, I remember they tried to make a chain out of it. I don't know if it ever took. Well, it's a mobile chain. It's a, right. one of like a, a, truck. a little stand. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But you think it's still a good hot dog? Or is it's just okay. A, yeah, it's just bad. nostalgic. I think the old ones were great because they probably never cleaned the grill, so the hot dogs were cooking in fat right. for about twenty years. And I bet you they still had the real pig casing on it, like probably. there was a, a snap probably, to yeah. it. You know what yeah. I mean? So what? So when did you? So but. You didn't. Uh, it wasn't your first job, show business, right? You, you, you went. That was show business, the bumper cars. Sure, yeah. sure. And you saw the freak shows and the Barkers. Absolutely, and, absolutely. And that was definitely yeah. the beginning yeah. of. Uh, but what? How did you learn how to do what you did? Where did you go from? Well, uh, when I ga- graduated from, I went to uh, college in New York. Went yeah. to NYU, yeah. and when I graduated, I was looking for a for a job, and I read a book. And in the book, there was a description of uh, of an agent. And yeah. It kind of sounded interesting. And I knew a guy as I was growing up that was a tall guy, and he always wore a black suit and a yeah. white shirt and a tie. And his name was Danny Welks, and uh, he was an agent at MCA. And I thought, well, that guy looks so good wearing that black suit. Yeah. So I didn't know, and I went up to MCA and went looking for a job. MCA at the time was the big, big agency. And... Uh, I didn't know anything. The guy asked in me, New York. In New York, yeah. the guy asked me all kinds of questions. I had no idea what he was talking about, and of course, <laughs> yeah. he didn't hire me. But I guess to get rid of me, he said, "You should try William Morris because they were competitive yeah. and they were looking down at the William Morris agency." Uh huh. So I said, uh, "Okay," and I got the address, and I went up to it for an interview at William Morris. And sure enough, the guy asked me the same exact questions. Right but now, I knew what not to say. Yeah, right. So I got the job in the mailroom as a temporary. Um, uh, for eight weeks, eight to ten weeks while the other guys in the mailroom might have been on vacation because it was end of college, so it was mid-June into uh, August. And that's how I started. And it, but you had no sense of what an agent really did, or you just not not a bit. You had you had you like show business, so I didn't. I know I didn't even know. I was just looking for a job, and that seemed okay. And really, yeah, if somebody else came along and offered me a job as a Book publishing, I might have taken that, or selling shoes. It could have gone mean, either way. Could have gone. Either. As a matter of fact, when I was in the army yeah. and stationed in Louisiana, I was I got a job in a shoe store selling shoes on uh, Saturdays and Sundays when we weren't uh, in camp. And you were okay with that? Yeah, I was a kid. I was doing <laughs> it. Didn't matter. <laughs> but like, but like, you come back from the. What, were you in Korea? No, I I was in the army during Korea, but I spent. Oh. Twenty uh, some odd months in Louisiana, and then you get out. And did you go back to school? Yeah, after that's that? when I went back. Yeah, what happened is I was uh, I graduated high school rather young. I skipped a couple of uh, uh, classes. Yeah, um, and so I when I I went to NYU. I got into NYU out of high school, but as I say, I was like seventeen. Yeah. You know, going to college, and there was still a lot of ex GIs. 
uh, guys coming back from the Second World War, and they were in college under the GI Bill. Right. So here I was, this kid, uh, and all the students around me were men who had really lived through four years of war. Yeah. Uh, fighting guys. the Japanese yeah. or the Germans, and right. here I was. So I was really out of place, and I felt very uncomfortable, and the Korean War started, and I said, you know what, i got to get out of here, and I literally joined the Army. I, I was a volunteer. I joined the Army uh, uh, and uh, spent two years in the Army. When I got out, I was now a lot more mature, Yep. Uh, went back to NYU, and at that point, the GIs were already gone. Right. Uh, so I felt very comfortable, and I had a, a professor. I had one course I was taking because I didn't know what I wanted to do, and uh, he was a man by the name of Leahy, a Professor Leahy. Yeah. And he introduced me to American literature. And yeah. I fell in love with John Dos Passos and John Steinbeck sure. and William Faulkner, all yeah. the great American writers from you the, the 20s stories. and 30s. Yeah. yeah. And, and I fell in love with it, and I started reading vociferously. And uh, I, I kind of loved that area. When I, when I got to William Morris uh, and seeing what was going on, I really decided that that's something I kind of liked and wanted to do. And I, frankly, 50-some-odd, well, now it's 60 years later from when I started at William Morris, I've never done anything else and uh, never had any desire to do anything else. You tell stories. Tell stories, exactly. And that was was the incentive. Yes, it was. But then, but you didn't. You didn't go directly into producing. You were. No, uh, you went into personal management. Well, what happened was I was uh, at best a mediocre agent, and I'm giving myself a lot of credit. I, I tell you, uh, I don't even understand what these guys do. When I read your book, you know, and I see the politics that are involved and the, the way decisions are made, and you, you know, the, on some level, there's a real racket to treating an actor like they're special. You know. They- <laughs> <laughs> you know it's what I mean? It's not easy. Yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously the big. But star, they are special, of course, way, yeah. of course. But but I'm saying like they're just a one piece of the puzzle. Obviously, an important piece, right? But uh, but it just sort of fascinates me, you know, the politics of 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 putting these movies together and dealing with the talent and dealing. It's crazy. So so how does it start for you? You you you, you go into personal management. Yeah. Well, uh, as I say, a mediocre uh, agent. agent yeah. uh, uh, I was then I got married when I was in the mailroom at William Morris. I was making forty bucks a week. Oh, and uh, big future. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Margot, my mother, my wife, uh, her mother and father were both vaudeville performers. Yeah. Right. Her mother actually uh, uh, did a. Uh, played Beethoven's violin concerto while she was doing a backbend, and that was her act. <laughs> it wasn't enough to yeah. just play the concerto. And her father was an MC who did a, a, a sand dance. Now, a sand dance is you would put sand on the stage, yeah. and he would move his feet to make music with the sand. Oh, right. So you get that kind yeah, of yeah. almost like a brush on the drum exactly, effect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, she came from... Anyhow, we met, and yeah. you know, we got married very young, and... Uh, I struggled along at William Morris for six or seven years. And were you like I, a junior agent, or you? you I finally, were, yeah, I made it into a regular agent. But yeah. uh, who were your clients? No, no nobody. nobody you would know <laughs> yeah. because they weren't very important. As yeah. a matter of fact, that's why I was a failure as an agent. An agent is as good as as basically his clients, and I didn't have very. I had a couple of really broken down uh, uh, comedians, oh, really? stand-up like, comics, who? you know. Let's see, uh, uh, Sammy Shore, which- uh, He was your client? Uh, he, Sammy Shore was one of our clients, yeah. yeah. And in uh, fact, that's the first time I saw Barbara Streisand in a club in Greenwich Village. She was 
Um, he was the leading act, and she was the opening act for uh, Sammy Shore. You know, I interviewed Sammy. You know, oh, did you really? He's still around. He's out in Vegas. All right, and we'll say hello for him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I work at the comedy store all the time, so I know his kids. Oh, really? And, you know, Mitzi and that. I'm very, you know, kind of preoccupied with that whole mythology of that place. Right. But I went out there, and I talked to him. Yeah, we handled You remember Jackie Vernon? Sure. I love Jackie Vernon. Jackie Vernon the, was oh, yeah. our client. Yeah. That's yeah. the slideshow, the, the fake slideshow. Yeah, that's right. I love him. He was yeah, one of my yeah. favorites when I was a little kid. Yeah. Loved him. So was, uh, those were the kind of uh, clients. So, you, so you're going out to the clubs in New York at that time. Oh, yeah. Then I, and, then, and then I met Bob Chartoff, uh, who was handling Jackie Mason. Oh, a young Jackie Mason. A before young Jackie, he, Didn't yeah. he get in trouble early well, on? He, yeah, well, we were there. We were handling oh, him when he got in trouble with Ed Sullivan. What did he do, flip? Uh, did yeah, he, he gave him a flip. Yeah, flip the finger or something. <laughs> yeah, that's something. exactly right. And the, well, what happened to Jackie, uh, uh, you know, comedians, when they go on television or, yeah. go, or in a nightclub, as you well know, uh, have a routine. Sure. They have a, a set routine, and they pretty well know uh, what they're going to say next. And... Uh, uh, with Ed Sullivan, uh, if you were on and you had a four-minute spot, yeah. you had it pretty well rehearsed, you know, where the laughs are going to be and everything else. And Sullivan, to Jackie Mason, as he was going on, said, cut it down to two and a half minutes. So here you go. And it was pretty tough. So in other words, you have to have your routine suddenly rewritten as you're heading to, <laughs> two and a half. to, to a live I camera. You get know? half a joke out in two and a yeah. half. Yeah, so he gave him the flip, and that was a big scandal. Uh, uh, so anyhow, Bob uh, uh, handled uh, Jackie, and Jackie started doing really, really well. And uh, Bob said to me, you know, you're not happy at William Morris. Uh, I'm starting out with a couple of comedians. He was, in, he was at William Morris as well? No, he was a manager. He, oh, just, he, right. Bob had graduated from Columbia Law School, yeah. and he didn't want to be a lawyer, and his uncle was uh, a, a booking act, booked acts in the Catskill Mountain. Oh, that's great. So he had a lot of contacts <laughs> with singers, dancers. You know, his uncle yeah. had a big board, and... Uh, if you drove a car, yeah. you could get a weekend's work because you would drive the dance act right. and the comedian or the or the singer. That was part of being yeah. the manager. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> everyone get in. I'll pick yeah. you up. That's right. And you you ended up getting work for the weekend if you had a car and drove everybody around because in those days you would do. You would drive up to the Catskill to the Borscht Belt, yeah. and you'd do two shows on Friday, probably three on Saturday, yeah. and two on Sunday, and then head back into town. It was a good. That was a good work weekend. That was a weekend, and uh, so he few, had he had uh, Mason and who else? Uh, well, Vernon, Jackie Vernon, Vernon, and uh, um, a couple other guys who I can't remember, and sure. nor could you. And a singer or two, yeah. Um, and that was his stable. That was he was ma personal management. Yeah, and, and he made it, he made a couple of bucks. But he 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 said to me, "Look, you have more experience in in le legitimate uh, actors, and because I handle a couple of uh, producers and uh, television people." He said, "Why don't we get together?" And you're not happy at William Morris. I yeah. I think we'd make a good partnership. And we joined the uh, uh, together, and we were together as partners for seventeen or eighteen years. In in that, well, we started in management, and then we ended up making the first, you know, uh, 
15 years of producing together. And, oh, but the, I thought it, that wasn't, he wasn't with you the, uh, for the whole time. I mean, it was only 17, 18 years you guys were yeah, part. Oh, yeah. 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 We broke up in 1980. Oh, 1982, really? Somewhere around there. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. Because he wanted to take it easy. Yeah. A he bit. wanted to get more involved in philanthropy and all that. And yeah. I kept, yeah. And I kept wanting to You make couldn't movies. stop. Yeah. I couldn't stop. And still can't stop, by yeah, the way. Clearly. Uh, if, yeah. Be, I, and don't, I, you, I got to, yeah, well, I'll ask you right now. How's that? Uh, how's the cut of the Irishman look? Yeah. We saw it. Uh, my, my Margo and I saw it, my wife Margo and I saw it about uh, a month ago in New York. And yeah. It's, it's really, it's probably, I think, maybe one of the greatest gangster movies ever oh, made. Oh, he outdid yeah. himself? Bar, Ma Marty outdid himself. Come Bar. on. De Niro is so great. Al Pacino is Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, Joe Pesci, Ray Romano, it's got a great cast and a great story, a great script by Steve Zalian, who's a wonderful writer. That's exciting. And, it's a, uh, I, I it's tell com you. coming out in the fall, it's really, really There's great. a couple of the movies that you produced, I watch over and over again, oh, really? like every year. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, I watch Goodfellas at least twice a year, and I've seen Raging Bull probably 20, 30 times. Well, we're going to run Raging Bull at the Los Angeles County Museum on... Uh, uh, May 9th, by the way. And big screen. Big, big screen, new Raging print. Bull, no, brand new print, yes. Oh, that's terrific. And I'm well, going to do a Q&A there as well. Uh, that's great. That's, I, I, I love that movie. We'll get there. So, okay, so you're you're doing the, you're do, working as an agent. Obviously, you're learning how the business works on the job. Right. Right? So, you, you know, you're getting all- But not doing well. Right, but at least you're, you're getting that information. Yeah, I mean, oh, you yeah, know, yeah. You I'm know finding what out what does. show business was about. Yeah. yeah. So when you when you hook when you start up with uh, with Bob, you know what what's the first order of business? You guys are running a personal management company. Well, first of all, is get some jobs for for people and find a way to take my unsuccessful clients that I took with me from William Morris. Who were which? Which um, ones? Well, one was a man you'd never know. His name was Nat Cohn. He was an English producer of low budget films. Uh huh. And he was so unimportant that when I left William Morris, they let me take him with me, and <laughs> nobody like, even knew he, nobody knew he was even gone. Yeah, and uh, and he had a a group of uh, films that called Carry On Nurse. There was a series of low budget comedies that they made in 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 England in the sixties, uh, in the late sixties. Yeah, and uh, my friend Cohen financed and produced all those films okay so i represented him yeah. and, and uh um we then met a uh a, a young uh, a, there was a young agent that came that was working with William Morris after i left who i thought was very bright and i asked him to come over and work for us and that was david geffen and uh at the last minute he decided not to work for us but sent us another young man uh, uh, by the name of Elliot Robertson. Elliot started our music division, uh, and that's then. We, so we we went from handling those comics, yeah, to some actors, right, uh, and then basically to uh, Joni Mitchell. Uh, you handled Joni Mitchell. You handled them, yeah. Because yeah. like Geffen ended up recording them. So was that relationship part of well, that? Well, what happened is when we started producing. Elliot left us and went to work with David oh, Geffen, okay. and they became partners. Yeah. Oh, there you go. And then yeah. the history of music is invented. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's crazy. Like how many of the guys, like in the book, kind of recur, and you, you see it. Yeah. Everybody kind of comes up together, and some guys fall off, but then other guys become yeah. huge. Well, yeah, because some of you never hear about, and obviously you don't write about them much because you never you don't think of them. But 
when I was in the mailroom, some of the, the well, I, I think two or three or four of them that I remember that I still see every once in a while, most of them are gone. Yeah. There was a very, very famous uh, personal manager by the name of Bernie Brillstein. Oh, Bernie, sure. Brillstein, Gray. I, I remember Bernie. Bernie, yeah. Because he handled guys I knew. Oh yeah, and uh, you know he was a you know great great person, a wonderful guy. He passed away about six or seven yeah. years ago, but Bernie was in the mailroom with me. Uh, Jerry Weintraub, yeah, who was also became a very big producer, producing all the Ocean's uh, movies, and but he started out when he left the Morris office when I, about the same time I left the Morris office. Uh, he was uh, you know handling. Uh, uh, he went on. He he went in to handle Frank Sinatra's. Big touring, yeah. and Elvis Presley's big touring. He was very, very successful, and he was a friend of yours. Oh yeah, we all we hung out together because, like, I yeah, because you you talk about how uh, the first movie, you know, you did was Elvis movie. That's right. But like, I think what's fascinating to me, what I didn't really realize about producing and about you know the creativity in it. Was that you guys, you, you know, you would take a property, a literature, a literary property, or even just a story, find a writer, find a star, find a director, find a studio, find some money. Like, it, I mean, that was really the job. You, there was no, uh, you were a part, you were part of the whole process. Is every producer like that? No, or? no. Um, it seemed unique Unfortunately to me. not. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because over the years, people said to me, hey, what does a producer really do? Right. And the truth of the matter is the producer could could do everything, could be everybody, including, I don't know, uh, Madonna's hairdresser's brother, who somehow became the producer Just of Just to get to credit for no yeah, reason. Exactly. Right. Uh, so, uh, but, and then there are producers like uh, Bernie Brostein or, yeah. or Jerry Wancho or myself uh, or Brian Grazer, who I know you had on the show, yeah. who are real producers. And, and that function is different. That's when you... A guy walks into your office and says, uh, you know, I got an idea for this and this. And you say, yeah, yeah, that's not bad. Let's kind of work on that. Yeah. And you work with him and he writes the script and then you uh, rewrite the script. And then you say, how are we going to cast it? And the guy says, well, no, the, I got a star in it. Um, and then you go, and like, it's, I don't know uh, if and you it's Rocky, you know. <laughs> and then you got to figure out how to get rid of that guy, but not make oh, him no, mad. The case, <laughs> actually, the case in Rocky is just that. Uh, Stallone came to see Bob Charnoff and I as an actor, yeah. Uh, but we didn't have a part for him, and uh, you know, as he, after we chatted for a few minutes, and he left the office, as he was leaving, he said, "Oh, by the way." Uh, and I'm not going to try to imitate the Sly. Yeah. Uh, he said, oh, by the way, uh, I'm a writer. Yeah. Said, oh, yeah? Well, you know, he didn't look like a writer. He didn't sound <laughs> like a writer. He didn't walk like a... Whatever a writer does and walks like because, Yeah, who knows? Uh, and he said, if I send you a script, would you guys read it? Yeah. So he sent us a script, and uh, we thought the writing was really, really good, but it yeah. was not something we wanted to do. So we said to him... Uh, we called him back and say, "Hey, you, you know, we think you're a good writer, but frankly, this is not a script we're interested in doing." And he and he was like an out of work actor who was dying for a job. And well, he just he done grabbed, uh, Lords of Flatbush, probably. Yeah, that's yeah. that's why we saw him because he he was very good in uh, Lords the, of Flatbush. The rubber band didn't work, Stanley. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So he said, I, you know, he like grabbed the hook and he yeah. said, well, if you really like my writing, I got another idea. Can I come in and talk to you about it? Yeah. So he came back and he pitched the idea of Rocky. And we thought it was a kind of nice little story. Sure. And he said, you know what? I'll write the script for nothing. You don't have to pay me. Right away, it sounded good, by the way. Yeah. And he said, however, there's one, <laughs> yeah. one problem. Right. Uh, he said, not a problem. He said, if you like the script, 
and you want to make the movie, I have to star in it. So we said, well, we got nothing to lose. If yeah. we, we don't like the script, it didn't cost us anything. We're not paying him. Right. And uh, if we like the script and we star him, we'll, we'll, okay. So as it, so he gave us about half the script. We gave him notes, sent back our notes. He finished the script rather quickly. And then uh, um, we said, okay, it's a nice little movie. We can make it for short money and all that. And you had a deal, right? And we had a deal at the studio at United Artists. And... Uh, we said to them, okay, we're going to make this little movie with, with Stallone yeah. and all that. And uh, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You want to make a fight movie. Women don't go to see fight movies. Nobody right. goes to see fight movies. And uh, you, you, uh, you got an ugly guy and an ugly girl, so two <laughs> ugly ducklings. Who's going to want to see right. two ugly ducklings kissing yeah. on the screen? Sure. And uh, you want to shoot it in Philadelphia. Nobody goes to Philadelphia anymore. <laughs> yeah. And then they said... And wait a minute, you want to star who? Yeah. Sylvester Stallone, we hate that name even. Why yeah. would you want to? So we said, well, that's what we, we, now we were just getting really, really angry. Yeah. Because we said, wait a minute, that's the, all, all those reasons that you gave us, those are good reasons to make a movie. Because what happens is if you listen to all the brilliant uh, uh, people out there who tell you, this is the way to do it. This is the way to do it. They're always going for the for the lowest common denominator. Yeah, to make uh, a buck based on bucks. And by the way, they said at the end of the movie he loses. Yeah, and How, I, <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah. So they all kind of okay. So we got really, I, I'd say, angry and determined. But politically, you were in a good position because of the deal, right? Yeah, we had a deal that where if we didn't make a movie within a certain period of time, yeah. we could put what they call put them to them. In other words, make them, make them forced to make a movie at a certain price. Sure. And the price was a million and a half dollars, which yeah. today would be, a, I guess, eight or nine million dollars. Yeah. And uh, so what they did, and that really got us angry, they did a budget on it themselves. And they yeah. said, well, the picture is two million dollars, therefore it's no longer... Under the uh, million and a half dollar uh, maximum. Ugh. So we said, uh, okay, in that case, we'll make it for a million dollars and we'll guarantee any overages. And they said, wait a minute, you don't have any money. How are you going to guarantee overages? So we kind of wrote a personal note. We put up everything we had to guarantee whatever overages there were. As it turned out, there were like only $25,000 in overages. Yeah. So then they were forced to make the movie, and they reluctantly made the movie. But they thought they were making it with a different guy. They thought Stallone was, uh, I forgot the guy's name, another character. From in, Lords of Flatbush? From Lords of Flatbush, yeah. because oh, they went to see, They went. you brought him in to see the movie. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And they said, wait a minute, that's the guy? <laughs> <laughs> so they, made, they made the movie with the wrong guy. It's amazing thing to me about that story is that you know this is the studios involved and where were they doing sh during shooting? They just well you guys went and did your thing. They had other work to do and then you. Well, actually, them. United Artists at the time was very very uh, producer friendly. Yeah. Uh, so, so they trusted you. They trusted us. Their, their attitude was if we're gonna if we if we don't trust you we shouldn't give you the money to make the movie. And is that the one they stifled distribution on that you had to go? Well, they wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but by the way, the same. Guys at that time made one flew over the cuckoos, yeah. Annie Hall. Yeah. They had a whole string of films where they trusted the filmmakers. Uh, so um, we made the movie and they looked at it and they sent me a letter saying, you know, we think it's okay, but uh, we want to remind you that we have the right to just sell it right to television and not uh, the theatrical. Right, yeah. So we went through a whole process of getting a theatrical release and all that stuff. And, and, it, and there you go. And Avilton directed it? Yeah. What happened was. We were looking for a director that could do a quick movie. Yeah. We didn't think it was going to be this... Well, I, I didn't think that I'd be sitting 
50 years later talking about it here in well, right. 40 years later talking about yeah, it. Yeah, after like now what, six or seven sequels of some well, kind? Eight. Eight. Yeah, well, with Creed seven two. sequels, yeah. yeah. It's the eighth one, yeah. yeah. And we're planning another one. Uh, <laughs> with Michael the gift B. Jordan. That keeps going giving. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I enjoyed well, the movies. I, I liked Creed. Uh, thank but, you. But Avilton, what, what, I, what struck uh, me was that you knew him from a- this Yeah, what a, happened was we had done a really bad movie that we had to reshoot three weeks. Which one? Uh, it was called. It turned out it was called Believe in Me. Yeah. Uh, with Michael Saracen and Jacqueline Bisset. Oh, the druggy uh, movie. Yeah, it was a druggy movie that didn't really work, and uh, we convinced the studio because the studio came down on you because of the they, content. Exactly. It might have worked if you had been allowed. It you never would have worked. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're being kind, but it never would have worked. All right. Uh, so, so you knew him from that. He helped you out. Yeah, he came he did, in. And he a did a good job for us. And what yeah. we wanted somebody who was fast and could really get it done quick. And we hired Avelson, and he did a terrific job. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. Well, right. let's go back before that because, like, I, I'm really kind of fascinated with the shift in that. Uh, you know, I know we don't have a, a you know all day, and you've done a lot of movies, but you know, in the period from like '67 to say, you know, uh, all the way you know through up to Rocky. You know, the, that that was the era of the American auteur, right? The studio mm -hmm. system had broken down. Completely. And and then you had these guys that had a point of view, directors, and yes. you guys kind of locked into that. But yes. I think, like, what I wanted to say before is that, you know, I didn't realize until reading this book, and I know there's not a lot of guys like you, but a lot of times the, the creative impetus for certain movies, you know, is all on the producer. If, you, mm -hmm. if you're a guy like yourself, you find a book and you're like, this could be something. We know a guy that can write this. Why don't we see how to do a script, see what we can do? Like it starts with you in a lot of ways. Yes. Uh, well, the Rocky story is one, but even... even so like the, the Strawberry but, Statement, yeah, right? Yeah. And, uh, the Strawberry Statement, which is a film really about, really, and, and it's worthwhile seeing because it really is a picture of what was going on in America in the late 60s during the uh, height of the, the youth movement yeah. and the conflict in Vietnam. Uh, but yeah, what we, what we would do in that case, we would... Uh, we found a story that was in New York Magazine or tipped off about a story in New York Magazine because we knew the uh, the editor and uh, uh, hired a writer to write the screenplay, uh, convinced the studio yeah. to finance it and cast it and, and, and make the movie. And what about like they, they shoot horses, don't they? I just, I just watched that because I interviewed Jane. That movie was, uh, it was so weird and so good and so uncomfortable. But it seemed like that was a real like hands-on training of putting something together like that. Oh yeah, that for was, you. That was complicated. Yeah, that was because, complicated. Because like you know, I, I the way it all came together. Now, did you find that property as well? No, that one. What happened is we kind of started by by our second or third movie. We were starting to make up an impression. We had done the second movie we did was a movie called Point Blank with uh, it's great uh, Lee movie. Marvin. Great and, uh, movie, terrific yeah. Terrific movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah. John so Borman. Yeah, John yeah. Borman, and that enhanced our... But John Borman is an interesting story. We had a, a kind of very loose relationship with John Borman through that English producer I had mentioned sure. earlier, Nat Cohen. All ties together. Uh, yeah, so when, when we got the script of Point Blank, we kind of were looking for a star that was really tough because it was written by... It was based on a Richard Starr character who was a pseudonym for Donald Westlake, who was a great, great mystery writer. Yeah. And it's a really tough character. And we thought, you know, most of the tough characters 
always want to be liked, even Humphrey Bogart. And as tough as he is, you right. want him always to like him. Yeah. Edward G. Robinson, sure. Jimmy Cagney. They yeah. Were, so you're rooting for the un- you're rooting for the bad so guy. So we wanted a guy who was really yeah. bad, really bad. <laughs> and Lee Marvin had a kind of a, a an aura about him at the time. Oh yeah. So we said, how do we get a hold of Lee Marvin? We called Lee Marvin's agent, who wouldn't even call us back. No kidding. So we did these. I mean, we were that crazy at the time. So we said, you know what we'll do? Let's get it to this guy John Borman, who had only done one little movie in England, which was like a Beatles kind of movie. It was called Catch Me If You Can with the Dave Clark Five. Yeah, it was about these rock and roll guys running yeah. around England in the late '60s. Right. So we said, you know what, we're gonna. This is what we'll do. Lee yeah. Marvin is making the Dirty Dozen in England. So we called up John Borman and said, Hey, John, <laughs> we're gonna send you this script. You read it. If you like it, you find Lee Marvin. We didn't even know where he was staying. <laughs> You find Lima, he's in London someplace doing the Dirty Dozen, and if you can get a home, have him read the script, and if he read the scripts and like it, to convince him that you should direct it. When you think about it, this is rather crazy. ridiculous thing. But we would we didn't know better, really. All we knew was that we liked the script, we wanted Lee Marvin, and the yeah. agent wouldn't call us back. And sure enough, uh, one day the phone rang, it was his agent who never called us back, saying, hey, you guys, uh, Lee Marvin just called, and he said he liked that script of yours, and... Uh, I'm sorry I didn't call you back, but he wants to do your movie. But he wants to do it with John with John Borman. <laughs> it worked out. <laughs> so the plan and we worked. Said, what? <laughs> <laughs> that was the other thing about reading these stories is that like the the, the lengths you guys would go. You're flying all over the fucking world to just uh, get, to have a meeting, right? To Absolutely. try to try to get it. it that's that that was the exciting part of the life, right? Absolutely. Also, we you know. Uh, as I say a moment ago, we didn't know any better. We just went straight ahead. We just kind of. But, that, but that, I think that was the, the nature of the time, right? Everything was. Yeah, free. everything it was, was in chaos. It was the studio system had broken down. There were nobody knew what was going but on. But there was still money there, and there were guys there, and they needed to make movies. Exactly. And, you know, and after Easy Rider, you're like, well, we're going to have to tap into this and, thing. And we know we can't make a do, no another Doris Day kind of movie. You know, it's over. Do something different. But I think, like you know, like what, what really <clears throat> struck me as 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 uh, something that you could do at that time and you weren't afraid to do all the way through Rocky, which was antithetical to the studio system, was you, you, you didn't have happy endings necessarily. You had human uh, endings, yes. right? Yeah. Like the like the New Centurions, which is, I think, an, uh, an unsung great movie. Thank you. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Uh, you, you but know, it also ends, it ends in tragedy. Yeah, it's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> How about They Shoot Horses ends this up with, with Jane Fonda said, put a bullet in my head. Yeah, you know? yeah. but that was the time. Yes, exactly. Because the country was existentially challenged. It was, uh, you know... Well, the, the Vietnam War, the end of Strawberry Statement is uh, because of our music uh, background, uh, we got John Lennon to give us, give and Paul McCartney to give us, give peace a chance, and it ends up with a, uh, a police riot on a campus where they kill a kid. Yeah, so this was the new Hollywood. It was you. Yes. You guys were producing, and like guys like Hal Ashby and and, and Scorsese was yep. starting yep. out, and uh, Rafelson and all those cats. Yeah, right? Bogdanovich oh, and, yeah. and Billy Freakin. He's yeah. a hell of a storyteller. Oh, yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's a great a filmmaker too. Great yeah. guy. Yeah. I just watched the French Connection again. It it's still holds still up. Yeah, great. Yeah, he's just... but like I guess like and you did. Uh, I didn't realize you did the original Gambler. That was the tricky one. Yeah, huh? I, yeah. Well, Toback and those guys. Yeah, well... Uh, who directed the original uh, one? A man by the name of Carol Rice. Oh, oh yeah, was, right. Who they, went on, he made some really, really... Tricky French Lieutenant's Woman? French Lieutenant's Woman, Meryl Street. Right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But before that, he had done a couple of the English working class kind of movies. Yeah. He was an interesting man. 
He was married to a woman uh, uh, by the name of Betsy Blair who was married to Gene Kelly at one time. No kidding. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I've always liked The Gambler, the original one. I, I did too. I, I thought it was by a By the great way, movie. you sometimes listen to the music of it. It's Mahler's first symphony is, a, is the primary source of music. There. Oh, yeah? yeah? Yeah. Yeah. But then, like, I guess really that, you know, everything changes... Well, I remember seeing Breakout. It's so funny because so many of these movies, I'm 55. So these were grown-up movies when yeah. I was a kid. And I remember seeing the posters for them. I remember, I remember seeing Breakout with my parents, oh, really? you know, with, yeah, yeah, with Bronson. Sure, my dad liked Charles Bronson, right? Yeah, we did a couple of movies with him. Yeah, I mean, you, you got him after, it's, it's, you, you kind of mentioned in one of the stories that he had kind of figured out how to be a little more charming and a little funnier. Yeah, well, yeah. in Breakout, he's kind of, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, But I guess Rocky really is the beginning of the shift in the business towards blockbuster movies, right? Well, at the block, it was Rocky, it was Jaws, yeah. it was French Connection, yep. uh, and certainly The Godfather. Uh, so all of them kind of yes. came in in that period, you know? What was, it, what was the story about The Godfather, about the gangster movie who, in the book? Who was it that couldn't do a gangster movie? What's his Oh, story? no, what happened? I, no, I... Yeah. Uh, when I was doing The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight, oh, that's right, with it was De Niro. by Jimmy Breslin. Oh, yeah. And I was looking for a director, so I got a call from an agent and said, <laughs> I have an idea for you. How how about Francis Ford Coppola directing The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight? And what had he done up to that point? He had done Finian's Rainbow yeah. and a couple of other right. you know, films like that. Right. And I said, now, why in the world would I hire Francis Ford Coppola to do a gangster movie? <laughs> And instead of doing my movie, he did The Godfather, probably the greatest gangster movie made. <laughs> you got to laugh about that. Well, when did the relationship with uh, with Martin Scorsese uh, begin? Because, I mean, you did several. You did you know, New York, New York. You did Raging Bull. You did- uh, Goodfellas. Goodfellas. And now- uh, I did Wolf of Wall Street. Right. I did Silence and, uh, and The and Irishman. And now The Irishman. Yeah. So how does that begin? Because you were working with De Niro with the- uh, Yeah, I did The Gang De Niro That Couldn't Shoot Straight. The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight. And what happened was uh, I had seen Mean Streets uh, at the New York Film Festival. And I thought it was really terrific. And he and I had a coffee together afterwards yeah. and just chatted. And he was a big fan of Point Blank. As a matter of fact, in Mean Streets, he uses the poster of sure. Lee Marvin and Point Blank in a scene. <laughs> yeah. So I was very in interested in him because I thought, how did he even know about yeah. Point Blank? Yeah. So we got together, we had a drink, and we, 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 we kind of got friendly very quickly. And then I got a call from his agent and said, Marty had read in one of the trade papers uh, that I was doing this big band musical called New York, New York, and he loved that era, loved the music of it, loved the whole story about it. He loved the big MGM musicals yeah. that were made by Vincent Minnelli. That's what you grew up uh, with, right? Yeah, and uh, and he'd like to talk to you about it, and then we talked, and I was thrilled because uh, I was talking about actually to Gene Kelly about directing it, and then I realized that the story needed a modern thought to it because it was too traditional not only was the big band era traditional, the music was somewhat traditional. Yeah. I needed somebody who could really shake up the story. And I thought, okay. Humanize it? Like make, make it, it tougher. Yeah. Make it tougher because yeah. it was too soft. It was The too, story is about a, 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 a man and a woman who were together. Was it, did you say it was loosely based on, a, on an act you had seen? Yeah. What, what, what happened is when... Uh, when Bob Charnoff and I were in the management business, we handled a, a very, very good cabaret singer by the name of Felicia Sanders. Uh -huh. And she, her husband 
was the was her pianist and accompanist. And yeah. he was a great, great piano player. Great yeah. piano player. But she was kind of between the two of them. She was the one that brought in the money. Yeah. And he had whatever ambition he had as right. a as a pianist was subjugated to playing little ditties behind Felicia Sanders because that's how they made their living. And I always struck by what their relationship must have been and how whether he was jealous of what he, her success, yeah. yet he loved her and he suppressed all his talent for her. Yeah. And I don't know that she ever really appreciated him or what he did. And that that's what gelled in your mind as a story? Exactly. That's what caused the story to be. And that's why I hired somebody to write the story based yeah. on my experience with Felicia So it's not Sanders. quite a star is born because he never becomes a star. Exactly. Yeah. It's, just, it's the opposite of star is born. Yeah. yeah. It's a... Yeah. Uh, uh, and she never really, you know, re- reached the heights. But right. you're right; it's it's the guy that suppressed his talent, and that's uh, and that was the kernel of it. So that's a, yes. that's a sort of a yeah. sad. By the way, you're story. talking. What does a producer do? That's one of the things you have this idea. Right. That's what know? I mean. And it and, starts with you. Yeah. And you hire. I hired a guy uh, yeah. by the name of Earl McRouch. The only reason I hired him is because I read some script that he wrote. Yeah. He had never written anything that yeah. made. But I made a cheap deal with him. So <laughs> I didn't have a lot of money, so I got him to do it cheap. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Scorsese liked the idea, and he liked the script. Uh, and he brought the toughness to it. And then... But it was a hard sell of musical in 1977. Well, what happened was we had a little heat because of Rocky. Yeah. So this came right after Rocky, right, right. on top of it. How do you feel about that decision now? Uh, yeah, pretty good. <laughs> you do? Well, I, I mean, what happened was... It, things came out of uh, each other in a way. Yeah. Because while we were doing New York, New York, Bob De Niro was walking around with this book all the time uh, called Raging Bull. Right. And Marty Scorsese was walking around all the time with a, with a book called The Last Temptation of Christ. And because <laughs> we all kind of bonded books. together on New York, New York, De Niro said to me, look, I got this book. Why don't you produce it? And we'll make this movie. And that took years, though, right after. Oh, it took many years. But yeah. like the New York, New York thing, like, you know, Bob went out and he, he learned how to play saxophone. You did exactly, everything yeah. you could. The music, you know, and you got the edge to it. And how did it right. do at the box office? Uh, not well. Yeah. Not well. Why the, do you think? Huh? Why do you think? It was it was very tough. It uh-huh. was very tough. Um Except, you know, we got a pretty good song out of it. You know? that, that, that's where the song came from. Oh, that yeah. Frank oh, took. We, what happened was... In the script, during their courtship and while they're in love and everything is going well, he says, I'm going to write a a song for you in a major chord, a big, big song in a major chord. And and that was kind of the theme of the movie to, to, uh, to some extent. And then Liza, because she had such big success with Candy Reneb, the the songwriter and composer yeah. of Cabaret, yeah. uh, she said, why don't you hire Candy Reneb to write the song? Um so we hired Candor and Ebb, and they wrote four songs, and uh, we all went to New York, and they played the song for us, and the New York, New York song was kind of a little ditty, and we all said, wait a minute, you know, this has got to be a big, dramatic song, and they said, well, we don't want to write a big, dramatic song because we don't want to compete with the, Can- with the Comden and Green Leonard Bernstein song, uh, New York, New York, It's a Wonderful Town. Right. So we said, wait a minute, we, we don't care about that song. Yeah. I mean, we want you to write a big, big, dramatic song. And if you can't write it, we'll get somebody else to write it. Yeah. They said, okay, let, me, let us try again. And two weeks later, I'll never forget it, uh, I got a, a tape, uh, an audio tape 
uh, and my wife and I were going to dinner at the Palm. Yeah. <laughs> and I put it in the, the audio player in my car, and it was Candor and Ebb at the piano singing New York, New York. Uh-huh. And that's how we knew we had something. Yeah, it, yeah. and then Frank took it later and made it well, his, yeah, and it didn't, saved it, his career. We couldn't, get, we couldn't get anybody to play Liza's version. And it was really, really great. It just, radio didn't want to play it. Sinatra was not doing particularly well in the late 70s. Uh, or 76, and he called Liza and said, you know, I'd like to, like, she didn't own the song, we did, yeah. but as a courtesy, he wanted to cover her song, so he called her and said, do you mind if I record your song, uh, New York, New York, and she said, yeah, it's not going anywhere, and he made, <laughs> he did it, and it became a great, great thing for Sinatra's career at the time, and it became the theme song of New York now. And, 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 what it means to be yeah. make it there, you can make it anywhere. And you and now and you own that song. Yeah, nice job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it was only because we insisted that they write something yeah. that was and, great, and, traumatic. And you could because never have known that it would have a life like never that. Never know, never know, because it would far. If we could say after two years, or you can't get it played. It's over, and also Ooh. like the and the, the movie did okay, and it was a great experience. But like, you, but you, whatever you lost on the movie, you got back on the song. Yeah, and also from that movie, I ended up making Raging Bull. Yeah, and Last uh, Temptation of Christ. Uh, well, I ended up going through the process of Last at the last minute. We were so so over budget and so in difficulty on the right stuff that I had to devote more time to it. Bob and I had to really spend all our time on the right stuff. Which turned out, I think, one of the best movies I've ever been involved. It's one, it's with. one of my favorite movies. And uh, uh, so I didn't do. I asked Marty to let me. Uh, uh, I turned it over to him and never got credit on it. I, I think the the amazing thing about the right stuff, and I don't want to jump over Raging Bull, but like, was that I, I don't think I, I think the comedy of the right stuff is genius. Like you know, it just rides this line. Yeah. But it's there. I mean, it's really a funny movie in some ways. Not like a slapstick comedy, but there are moments just out of the 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 sort of uh, the the insanity of trying to get these guys into space that are hilarious. You had Harry Shearer, Jeff Goldblum running down the hall. Yeah, 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 they yeah. got Sputnik. <laughs> you know, it was, just fun. It was definitely and the Lyndon Johnson character. Yeah, yeah. great. Yeah, and wanting he, to be on television. <laughs> he, oh yeah, yeah. The, the, oh, because of John Glenn's That's wife. Right. That's you right. You can't deal with yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but Raging Bull. I mean, you, you know the so you again. This is something that was a property that you know that that Bob was interested in that someone else owned that you got right. You know, and and you rest you 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 wrestled this thing into existence, really. Well, yeah, we did because uh, Bob's passion for it, and uh, and ultimately Marty's passion for it, um, really uh, 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 was was incredible. And by then, we had made such a success with Rocky, which was an Academy Award winner and did great great business, uh, that we were able to force the studio into making Raging Bull because they wanted us to make a Rocky too. And but it see. turns out it's a truly different movie. It's Very really, different. And I like the whole process of like, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to make that character sympathetic. And, you know, and dealing with Paul Schrader and what, you know, I don't remember who, what was the, what was the final script? Whose script was it finally? Well, uh, finally the script was written by Marty Scorsese and Bob De Niro. What happened was Paul did, did a really, really good job as far as structure is concerned. He's a dark cat uh, though. Yeah, he is dark. And we wanted more. Uh, passion in a yeah, way, right? So Marty and uh, and Bob, we kind of sent them down to uh, get away from it all. They went down to the Caribbean to uh, uh, 
Uh, I forgot the name of the island, and uh, they spent three or four weeks. St. Martin's. St. Martin's, yes. Hey. So, <laughs> what I found fascinating about that whole story, outside of the you know the process and the editing and you know how it was shot and you know him learning how to fight and putting on the weight, all the stuff that we already know, that there was one moment in in the story that really was like revealing about Trader and also revealing about what you're talking about now and finding the passion when you know when he's locked up in that jail cell and yeah. Trader had scripted him jerking off, right, and the, you know, that wasn't the way to go for the character and somehow you not not that it was offensive you know guys jerk off whatever but that character was not that guy exactly. and it really says something about Schrader's inner life not in a negative way that you know he would have taken it in on himself and but but then you know the cho- the choice to have him punch in the wall you know, I'm not an animal. Yeah. Well, that you know, that the, was between Marty and Bob. Yeah, it's it's they, very. They it, it, it was you know there was a there there was something about that. It's a very odd you know kind of like predicament. Like you know this guy's not going to jerk off in the cell. Right, He's yeah. going to beat the walls up. Right. Yeah, I, I just thought that was kind right. of a fascinating beating up himself. But right. then of course the the job also, and I, I mentioned in the book. Then the process of making a film is there's a complication to that. Then. The prop man and the set dresser come to me and say, what should we do with the wall? Yeah. How do we build the wall? Because we don't want Bob De Niro to break his hand. Because he would. Yeah, because he'd punch the wall. So we have to make the wall look like it's real enough and still not uh, give him <laughs> not, not break his hand. So you have to build it. So the, all that kind of process comes into, in a, in a, yeah. in a way, to build I, it up. And the type of producer you are, you're involved with all the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. And, and, and obviously, it's, it's one of the greatest movies ever. And, and again, you know, not realizing it because it's been a while and, and I didn't know the context of the industry then that you know to have a guy that violent towards his wife towards in the language and then towards his brother even today if you look at it you're a bit surprised by it and 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 you got away with that how well what happened is again we had a lot of uh, credibility because we had won an academy award for rocky and and what happened is rocky was in a a way the uh, opposite of it because it was a film uh, that was really really uh, i think of as a great romance and a great the story about believing in yourself yeah. and never, never uh, yeah. backing. You know, if you have your chance, take it and run with it. Raging Bull's the opposite. Well, in a lot of ways, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's what violence can do to you in in a way. You know. Yeah, and and pride and ego and all. Of yes. It. Yeah, I, I, and it and it, it did well, obviously, at Raging Bull. It's still doing well. It still yeah. gets played all the time, uh, and. Uh, uh, it's considered really, really one of the you know classic oh, yeah. films of that period. And like the the story of the right stuff, which I thought you know I love Philip Kaufman and I, and I and I love the movie, but it it, it wasn't the story of uh, of the disappointment was is is kind of baffling. It, and do, do, in retrospect, like you know this is a great movie. You, you, you know, and and uh, and again, you wrangled it yourself with Tom Wolfe, right? Right. Yeah. Hey, was, yeah. Tom was an old friend, and he gave he gave us a, an early look at the book. Yeah. yeah. And and so you got the property. Yes, we bought the property cold. Yeah. And then out uh, of our own money, by and, the way. And eventually, you pulled in Philip to write it, and he wanted to direct it. Well, what happened is originally we we hired. Uh, uh, um, uh, another writer to do it and uh, we weren't happy with the screenplay yeah uh, and then we gave it to Phil and we asked him to write it and then he didn't want to direct it so we had to convince him to direct it yeah and what you get is this like it's sort of a master by the way the original writer was William Goldman who was also a great writer who all just passed away yeah who wrote all the President's Men yeah. and 
but it turned out we didn't like the script. Yeah. Which was, everybody was kind of stunned by and, it. Right, and he took his money and he didn't want to do the, and, yeah, the and second he didn't and third pass. Anymore, and then, then that's when we brought in Kaufman, yeah. Now, like, when you look at that, you know, the the arc of that, that film and the making of it, it was like kind of a, a spectacular event. You know, you got NASA on board, you got, you, and it just does nothing. I right. mean, do, how do you explain that? Like, you, you go to the theater the day of, you think it's going to be a big hit, and there's nothing. Nobody there. Yeah. I tell the story because I, I got up that morning of Friday. We had got great reviews. We were uh, we had like 10 pages in Newsweek magazine, 10 pages in Time magazine. It was really, really great previews and everything else. And I got up that morning, and I drove to Hollywood to see it was playing at the Chinese yeah. theater. And there was nobody outside, and I thought, oh, boy, there was, there was such a crowd that the uh, theater manager yeah, let everybody in early because they were rioting to get in. Because when I looked in, there was nobody there. Yeah. Uh, so I, I said, well, I knew right then I was in trouble, but right. I, I then I drove to Century City where it was also playing. I said, well, maybe everybody went to Century City. Turned out there was nobody there either. Oh, my God. And that night at home, I'm in really, really a depression. Uh, my son Adam came to me. He was going to Beverly Hills High, and he said, Dad, he said, you know, the strangest thing happened. My teacher arranged for everybody to go see your movie, The Right Stuff, yeah. uh, at the theater in Century City tomorrow. Uh, all they had to do was sign up, and they didn't have to go to class. They can go to the movie. I said, well, that's great. That's wonderful that your teacher did that. He said, yeah, but nobody signed up. Oh, my God. So I said to myself, wait a minute. They'd rather sit in class then go to see my movie. That's not good. <laughs> what do you think? Wh why do you think that happened? You know what? You never know. Um, there is absolutely no reason for it. No, no reason. I thought about it for 30, 30 40 years, yeah. and I really have never figured it out because it's a really, really a score that's absolutely great by Bill Conti, oh, Bill Conti that won an Academy Award. It's about America. It's about the best things in America. Yeah. It ends up with a heroic performance by Sam Shepard. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, it's it's about America conquering space. Yeah. Um, it's funny, as you said. Yeah. It's moving, and we couldn't get anybody to see it. And, and it won four Academy Awards. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards. Uh, to this day, I'll never figure out why. That's wild, man. I also want to give a little love to True Confessions, which I also think should have been a bigger movie, and I think it's a genius movie. I love Thank that you. movie. Thank you. That was uh, like that was so great, and it, it also struck me about how aware you were of these actors, of Bob's ability, of De Niro's ability to sort of really take on things that are they're sort of oppo diametrically opposed in each Like he took the challenge to go from Raging Bull to True Confessions, right, right. which is like the opposite type exactly, of character. Exactly, you're absolutely right. It's just the opposite character you can- But you knew he could do it. Yeah, because he could do anything. He, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I the other day I was just, and I had nothing to do with it. I was watching like Analyze This, and he's hysterical. Great. hysterical. So I love that thing. So there's nothing he can't do. Whether you see him in The Irishman, I think you're going to see a performance that you can't not believe I can't so wait strong. I had I got to meet him because I did a very very small part in this new Joker movie that Todd Phillips directed uh-huh so I got to do a scene with oh, him really? it was like you know it was I, I didn't I'm, he wouldn't remember me or anything but it was very exciting to meet the guy he's a he's a very well we made uh, I think like also like eight movies let's see we made New York New York uh gang that couldn't shoot Street, Raging Bull True Confessions Guilty by Suspicion Goodfellas Goodfellas 
Um, and the Irishman. Well, yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit. You know, I mean, Goodfellas obviously is one of the best movies, and you're telling me that the Irishman's a better gangster movie, so that I, you know, I'm in. Yeah, <laughs> why didn't you do Casino? Wait, well, you weren't part of that. I, well, what happened was at that point I was starting to direct. And well, that's I, what I want to talk about. Uh, yeah, now, I, I moved to directing after years. You know, like you, you know what what uh, you know. You watch the business change. You go from the seventies into the blockbuster time, and and now, like uh, you know, what was it that that made you want to direct? I found it. I found producing was becoming a bit easy. Oh, and you I, want to challenge I, yourself. I wanted something more challenging, and I had a script that I thought uh, could have been better uh, directed than it was. And uh, which one? Uh, I don't want to really say about the director, oh, but okay. it was the music box, uh-huh. okay. <laughs> which yeah. Jessica Lange was yeah. nominated for Academy, which is a terrific movie. I, I just maybe I was jealous or something. I don't know. I and I decided I think I'm going to do this myself, and I got very very interested in the blacklist. Uh, that was going on in Hollywood in the 50s. I didn't know anything about it at all. You must have known guys that were blacklisted. Not really. Mm. It was like, it, it was an unknown part of Hollywood uh, um, and really nobody talked about it and I didn't know anything about it. Uh, and I got interested in it and I started doing research. What was that one great book about it? Was it well, Naming called Names? Naming or, Names yeah. by Victor Navasky. Yeah. It's a great, great book. Yeah. Um, so I, I, uh, I got interested in it and I said, you know what? I wrote the script myself, and I said, you know what? I don't want to turn this over to somebody. I want to do it myself, and I decided to direct it. And in the book, I, I used my diary as a- as I thought a that was great. Of, yeah, to see how it actually came about. And when, when, you, when you reread that diary, were you, were, could you relive that, that process? Yeah, it was really, really- But it became sort of an obsessive project with you. You, you engaged uh, uh, you know, an actual- But every movie is an obsessive project, or else you never get them made. But you're directing this one. You got more on the line. Yes. You, get, you know, this is, you're, you're new with this. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I, you know, I lived through so much of it for for all that period of time because actually I had another one that I was going to do a couple of years before that called Dessa Rose. Yeah. Uh, where I worked on the on the script for a long time and I was going to do it and then it, uh, that that got canceled three days before shooting. So, but I'm obsessive about everything, uh, every movie, whether I direct it or not. But I thought it was interesting that, you know, you wanted to get this right because of what it implied about the country, about the business and, and, and how it's a, a cautionary tale. Yeah, and, and, that, and it was frankly something that I had my name on as a director for the first time. So I really wanted to make it I thought it was a great movie. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm and very I, proud of it. Yeah. And uh, and you, you know, it, it's interesting to read the diary in the book. Uh, you know, just in terms of, you know, how we go, who's going to star in this. You didn't think De Niro would do it, and you're getting all these other options. You're not sure about the options. Some people you wanted, they couldn't do it. Everyone turned you down, right. and De Niro decides to do it. But what was it that you you, you wanted to get perfect in that? Because there would seem to be a real struggle with the character. Yeah, well, because I felt very strongly that the Hollywood blacklist, uh, they they would call you and the government would call you and say, you know what, you were at a party at uh, Mark Marion's house. Yeah. And uh, there were three or four people there that were talking about communism. And you would say, yeah, and people were chatting about it. Then, well, what were their names? And you say, wait a minute, why do you want to know the names? They were just talking about communism. They weren't communists or anything. They said, that's okay, uh, but we want to talk to them and see what their real feelings are. And you say, wait a minute, if I give you their names, they're going to get blacklisted. Yeah. 
Um, and and they come back and say, well, if you don't give us their name, it means you're not patriotic, so you must be a communist. So basically, there was no way out. Uh, Dalton Trumbo said, uh, there are no villains and there are no heroes. There are only yeah. victims. Well, I think in, in that in, in in that time though, that was a it was a political agenda by you know a lunatic. Uh, in, in yeah, John but McCarthy. he was but 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 he was backed by a government. Don't forget the blacklist started by the Truman administration. What happened is when, and I, I go into a little political history when when China became a communist country, uh, the Republicans blamed the Truman administration for allowing it to happen, as if they could have stopped it. Right. So the Truman administration reaction to the Republican we'll criticism right. that they were soft on communism really was responsible for the Hollywood blacklist. Right. I think like now the, the political culture of divisiveness is like you know, what, what's more troubling to me is the, you know, the propaganda that's, ch- you know, that and the, the, the misinformation that's defining the anger of a certain faction of the, of the, of the country. Yes. And I think, and, the, and the media is very much involved in it. And, and uh, you know, when you watch one form of, of when you watch Fox News, you get a sure, really, right, really right. a picture of America that isn't realistic. But in terms of people being accused of things, I think it's a little different. Like in specifically with the with the sexual harassment right. and sexual. I mean, because that's it, it's a different sort of context of that. I mean, well, yeah. What happened is, see, there's uh, definitely uh, victims that don't have a voice here. Yeah, right. and the victims have not had a voice uh, yeah. for the last, you know, right. forever. Right. So uh, I think. Look, not everybody uh, that went to the guillotine in the French uh, Revolution was guilty. There's always been a couple of people right. that got their head cut off right. that weren't, you know. Sure. And, but that happens in any revolution. Sure. Uh, but I think we're going through a really interesting time as far as re- the revolution is concerned, and it's a good thing. And it was, a good thing. Uh, yeah, for sure. And you did that film with Tom Berenger that was sort of uh, kind of saw this coming in a way. Yes, it was. Uh, I was very proud of that film. It's not very well known. Uh, it's called Betrayed, with uh, uh, directed. I by remember. It. It's menacing, very menacing, because it, it takes a look at the really, really uh, tough right wing militants in America. By the way, uh, day before, I think it was yesterday or the day before yesterday, uh, the FBI arrested a militant group down in Texas that were holding. Yeah, uh, they were arresting prisoner. people. Yeah, yeah they were. Yeah. They, they were holding uh, uh, asylum seekers. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, they, you know, they were there back in '88 when you made that movie, and yeah. now they're 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 shameless and they're a dominant political voice. Yes. Uh, not a not a great evolution. And we picture them as uh, you know family people, people who had great picnics and July Fourth celebrations, but underneath it, it was really a lot of hate. And let me ask you, I know you've directed a few other movies, but like, I want to talk about some of the more recent films before I lose you here. The Wolf of Wall Street, I thought was tremendous. Yeah. What a fun movie, an yeah, energetic Mar- movie. Yeah, yeah, Marty really goes goes for it. Yeah. Now, well, that's the question. It's like, you know, obviously Creed was a great, very satisfying film, but Silence is kind of a difficult movie. Yeah, it took us almost 20 years to make. Yeah. And this is a passion project of his. It's very interesting that, you know, when you can see his his kind of like mania you know, and, you know, his obsession with music and editing and filmmaking and improvisation, you know, against, you know, these movies like that, which is sort of a meditation, a poetic movie right. that I think, takes a lot of I space. I think it's one of his best movies uh, ever, frankly, because it's very deep in his soul. 
It's about what he believes in, and it's about his Catholicism yeah. and his uh, his uh, really beliefs, and uh, uh, and really where you caught up in in uh, how far does your belief take you? Yeah, uh, and are there limits to that belief? Uh, and I think that's uh, what he was examining with that film. I, I want to watch it again, you know, because you, you, you get a certain thing in your head when you think Martin Scorsese, and you, you know, and, and it, you really have it's a thoughtful movie, and it very, takes time. Yeah. Very much so. Now, in, in terms of the business, because like I said, you know, in the book, you, you kind of break it into five parts uh, about the evolution of the business and, and what's happening in the business. And also, obviously, without really saying it, your ability to adapt. Now, you know, when I read about what it took to make some films and, you know, these negotiations with the uh, actors, agents, executives, everybody, directors, uh, that now the, 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 the entire ability to make a movie is untethered from all, any of that. You can just make it on your phone if you really want to, and people have done it. Right. So what are your concerns about the business as it stands? Obviously, with with The Irishman, you know, you're working with Netflix, and you, you've you sort of framed it in the book as being like, this is a great opportunity for 125 million people to see a movie, but we lose that beautiful magic. You know, we've got the Marvel movies in the theaters and everything else, but you're aware of that. Right. I mean, what are your concerns about the film Well, business? I think in the case of Irishman, and I can't say that about other Netflix films particularly, but or specifically, but as far as Irishman is concerned, uh, I think the opportunity to see it in theaters is going to be available to a great many people yeah. uh, for a number of weeks. Yeah. Or, or, uh, and then um, uh, hopefully they're going to sit back on the big screen in their house and not on their phone and watch this movie. Uh, but I think basically uh, back to the time of, uh, of home video when, when uh, uh, the Business, uh, when I first came, uh, was in the throes of television's gr grasp. Yeah. Uh, nobody, uh, everybody predicted nobody would go to a movie. They would, why see a movie if you could see it on television at home? And mm -hmm. then it was, why see a movie if you could have a DVD that you could put into your, uh, or actually a videotape? Right. Uh, why do that? Uh, and I keep thinking about the DNA of all of us, uh, uh, whether we're... Uh, uh, Californians or New Yorkers or Londoners or South Africans or yeah. uh, some guy in Tokyo. People. People. In our DNA, there, there was some man or woman who scratched together a couple of uh, uh, stones and made a spark and made a fire. Yeah. So these almost Neanderthal people or maybe a, a little more sophisticated gathered around the fire probably to keep warm at the time yep. uh, and uh, somebody showed up and told the story Yeah. and people sat around and came to listen to the story and one guy said we saw Zach last week terrific <laughs> very good <laughs> but I think what's happened is People are still going to go to the theater. Sure. They're still going to go to a movie theater. They're still going to want to gather around and in some place. So you think the communal desire is still there? Yes, I think it's in our DNA. I think that's part of who we are. Yeah. And I don't think that's going to uh, diminish it and, and And do you, like, you, you know, like I sometimes am nostalgic for a smaller media landscape because I think it helped community in the sense that even when it was television, when there were three channels, you know, everybody was sort of talking about the same thing. Now you talk about a show and people, they, you tell them where, where it's on, they don't know what that is. 
Yeah. You know, so is the, is that sort of like mass democratization of the business? The, no, is it's that... not even that. I think basically it's the, 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 the social climate that we live in is very, very different. Uh, I was on a plane the other day and uh, uh, they had everybody was watching on television screen except half the crowd was watching the same movie on their iPhone yeah. when they had the biggest screen to watch right in front of them. Slightly bigger. Yeah. yeah, somewhat bigger. Yeah. But they still will watch on the iPhone. But do you think it diminishes the quality or that? Of course you know, it diminishes the quality. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we so make it, we make the film for the big screen no matter what. Yeah. Right. Right. Whether 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 you make it for uh No, I'm uh, saying that do you yeah. think that like because there's so much available and that any you know, there's such a hunger for content that it's gonna be harder for the great things to come forward. Uh no. Great things will always come forth. Talent will always persist. Uh, okay. I think if you, if you said to me, what is the secret of your longevity over all these years and still making movies? I say it's my relationship to A, the book, yeah. and B, the talent, or that's one and the same. Uh, that being the director, the actors. And then the, the script. Yeah. The writers. The Everybody will be flocking towards a really, really good script. Yeah. That includes the director, the actor. The studio, the financiers, the distributor, the theater, yeah. and the audience. Good scripts. Well, great, man. Yeah, that was a great way to end. Thank you for talking to me. Well, thank you. It was great, great questions. I thank appreciate you. it. Yeah, I know I didn't get to everything, but what a great, uh, what a great guy. What a great talk. Some real uh, good stories, man. Good stories. Erwin Winkler's book, A Life in Movies, Stories from 50 Years in Hollywood, comes out May 7th. You can pre-order it now. Okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna play some kind of bouncy, echoey. Um, you know, it sounds a little Senegalese to me, right? All right, here we go. Here we go.